Paintings, drawings, photographs, moving pictures, poetry, and letters infuse this episode of word-by-word conversations with writers. This is because host Gil Manser and studio engineer Anthony Garcia's guest is the respected biographer Carolyn Burke with her latest book, Foursome. The four people who burst forth in this volume are the photographer Alfred Stieglitz? Yes, Stieglitz. Stieglitz. Painter George O'Keefe, movie maker Paul Strand, and writer-painter Rebecca Salisbury. So we welcome you here to Northern California Public Media, KRCB-FM. Born in Sydney, Australia, Carolyn Burke has taught at Princeton, UC Santa Cruz, UC Davis, the Universities of Western Sydney and New South Wales in Australia, and at the Sorbonne and the University of Lille. Is it Lille? Lille. Lille. The University of Lille in France. She is the author of Becoming Modern, The Life of Mina Loy, about the noted poet. Lee Miller, a life about the fashion model turned photojournalist, was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year and finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Biography Award. And her book about the iconic French chanteuse entitled No Regrets, The Life of Edith Piaf. But the biography we will be chatting about today is entitled Foursome, a captivating, spirited account of the intense relationship among four artists whose strong personalities, passionate feelings, and aesthetic ideals drew them together, pulled them apart, and profoundly influenced the very shape of 20th century art. Carolyn Burke, welcome to Word by Word. I'm very glad to be here. Okay, I have to ask you a question. As as our listeners know, I've often talked to biographers in the past. F. Scott Berg was one, and he told me one of the most difficult things of, other than the research— for a biography, and then cutting it down to a you know a readable length, was deciding where to begin with someone's story. And you have done a really clever thing. You have begun to use the episode that you use as your hook in before the book starts in the prologue, and that is that wonderful 1918 exhibition that scandalized the well New York and all the rest of the country. So tell us about that and why you chose that particular. It seemed to me a good way to invite the reader or readers into the story to have all four of my protagonists together for the first time Mm -hmm. at an event that we, you know, people of our time could imagine attending. So I begin the book with the opening of the scandalous exhibition of of Stieglitz's photographs, which included a great number of nudes of Georgia O'Keeffe, who was um, identified only as a woman. She wasn't given her name under these circumstances. Because I thought, well, it's as if we're there with those uh, New Yorkers who rushed to the show once the word went round about the scandalous content. And we can imagine being in that situation and meeting all four of these characters. So right. it was sort of a high point with some um, almost cinematic interest to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it definitely catches your attention. Now, the Good. gallery we're talking about was named 291 Gallery. It's named after the number of the actually the one the place next door on 5th Avenue but it's a very small space and the in the room where the nude portraits were shown was even smaller was quite tiny it's almost the size of a closet is my impression well actually excuse me uh, uh, this exhibition 
took place not at 291, oh. but at another gallery called the Anderson Gallery, oh, okay. which was a bit larger because by then Stieglitz had closed 291. You're quite right about the way you described 291. It was very small. But uh, during the first war, as as the situation became more and more tense and less and less conducive to um, art, let alone um, experimental art, Stieglitz became very discouraged, closed 291, and it wasn't until a few years later, kind of reinvigorated by his discovery of O'Keefe and their love affair, that he decided, all right, I'm going to show my work again, and I'll show it at the Anderson Gallery, which was uptown um, on in the East 50s, 59th Street, rather than downtown, where 291 had been. Okay, well, that's important. Right. And it was larger. So the I tried to describe the experience of going to that opening by walking my readers through. They see first uh, Stieglitz's beautiful photographs of New York and then his portraits of the members of the Stieglitz group until finally they come ah, to the last okay. room. Until finally they come, and I'm going to have you read here, okay? Oh, okay. All right. So... They, they're they on their way to the pictures of the notorious, quote, woman with mm-hmm. a capital W. These are the visitors. They encountered her in a grouping that showed her before one of her charcoal drawings. Dressed in a trim black jacket and hat, she looked away from the camera, a portrait of the artist as a young woman. Moving around the room, visitors met her in more intimate poses, her hat off, her tailored blouse unbuttoned, her dark tresses undone. In a warm palladian print, she reappeared in a white kimono whose delicate pattern complemented the dark tones of her hair. Studies of her elegant fingers and hands were grouped as a single portrait, as if these parts expressed the woman as a lover and an artist. On another wall, her hands touched her voluptuous breasts, weighing their contours or pressing them together in a group labeled forthrightly hands and breasts. Another set of sepia-toned prints, torsos, compared her body to sculpture while simultaneously drawing the gaze to the dark V-shape of her pubic hair. Photographs marked by such intimacy had never been seen in public. They seemed to tell a story tracing the growth of the couple's affections. Stieglitz's portrait of this woman, one admirer wrote, Quote, showed us the life of the pores, of the hair along the shin bone, of the veining of the pulse, and the liquid moisture on the upper lip. To some, these prints were love poems. To some, these prints were love poems. Now, will you go in then the next part of the book, we really meet Alfred Stieglitz. We start with him as a child and again growing up and becoming a photographer, discovering, you know, the camera. Yes. Uh, and he is a... Um, Single-minded individual. Is that a good description? Absolutely. Absolutely. He wanted perfection. And to give us a sort of a flashback to that time in photography, there were the – this is before the, you know, the brownie, the box camera, the Kodak. Yes. So it was uh, only for the professionals to use or people who had some money. That's right. And who had the patience to deal with the long exposures and the uh, – chemical knowledge to mm-hmm. deal with the development process. So it was not accessible to the man in the street. Quite. Now, was he using glass plates then? In the beginning, yes. 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 No. So it's a, it's a 
chemical process as much as it is an artistic process. Yes, and with his background, um, uh, he was a very, very intelligent young man whose father insisted that he study engineering because he destined him for some kind of important role, you know, in in the developing industries in the late nineteenth century. So he had some uh, quite a scientific background that he could bring to this new. Um, genre of photography, but he also had the artistic eye. It was an unusual combination of of, of skills and, and um, talents. Right. And the thing is that what he ended up, there became a, a dichotomy in photography quite early on between those who wanted it to be done in the classic style, the take the time, you know, shape your image, wait for the right moment, mm-hmm. and then hit the shutter. And those who wanted it to be more natural, mm-hmm. is that easy. a good easy? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. see, that's the term. Easy would be the term that Stieglitz would use because that that makes it uh, less valuable. Well, he was very much opposed to the Kodak brownie at first yes. because he thought it made it too easy. You remember Kodak's slogan: um, uh, "You push the button, we do the rest." Right. That was not the Stieglitz approach. Now, this is the time for those of us you know, in the audience who don't remember, when there was a roll of film in the camera and you turned a little knob and it went on to the next, you know, space to take an image on the on the film. Right. And then you sent it off or brought it down to the, you know, the processing place in town and, and then got it back in three days or so. That's right. You didn't do the printing, whereas Stieglitz was um, a master printer, as was Strand later on, mm-hmm. very, very much engaged in the choice of the different papers, the beautiful palladium and silver tone papers that you could use then, and the different ways of putting them through the chemical bath. So the idea that Kodak did the rest was just um, very hard to accept. Right. Well, it did the rest, but it, there was a consistency to Kodak shots. True. You can see them today when you look through you know True. books and magazines, and you know almost to the 10-year time of when it was shot because of the colors in the, in the prints. Well, this this whole discussion is very interesting because it takes place in the context that Stieglitz was so concerned about, to wit, whether or not photography was a mechanical process or whether it had the status of an art. Mm-hmm. And there was an immense amount of debate about that with many people in the art world, you know, painters and critics, wanting to dismiss photography, in part because of the Kodak being, again, too easy. Right. So Stieglitz was right in the thick of all of that debate, trying to create respect and even, um, you know, acceptance of, of he wouldn't call it artistic photography, but we might, uh, at a time when this was not at all the, the usual way of thinking about uh, taking photographs. Right. The other photographs that were done were the, the, the traveling photographer who would sit everybody in a group Stay still, you know, got to count to three or ten or whatever it was for the yes. exposure time, and then everybody can move. And, and right. you know, that's what recorded the Civil War, and they were still using that technique. And, of course, it has its uses, but that wasn't his, his approach. Right, exactly. So one of the things he did by starting the gallery was allowing him to show works that otherwise would not be displayed. Right. So not only himself, but some very famous other um, photographers, other artists. He brought over uh, people from Paris who were referred to him by uh, Steichen. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it was the first time Picasso had been shown. That's right. Yes. Before World War One, 
uh, his gallery, 291, which, which you described a few minutes ago, was the place to go see modern art, especially from Europe, but also to see American photographers like Steichen and um, three or four others who were very eminent at the time and were closely connected with Stieglitz. So it was, you know, the most important and influential place of its kind in, in the U.S. at that time. Right. Now, one of the things, uh, another thing that Scott told me was uh, when writing a biography, you have to like the characters. <laughs> do you like Stieglitz? Yes, I do, surprisingly. In, last night in conversation, it was pointed out to me that he was, in a certain way, a monster of selfishness, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good description. Yes. Well, shall we call him self-centered? Yes, we could be more um, reserved about it, call him self-centered, self-absorbed. And I thought about it, and I thought, yes, he was, and unless you went along with him and his views, unless you saw him as your guru or as your spiritual and artistic guide, you would have a very hard time with him. Some people didn't care much for him because of these autocratic ways and because of his insistence that he alone saw the direction that American art should take and how it would cure certain ills in American culture and society. That was a bit much. But he was such a strong and charismatic personality that many people did go along with him. And I think I rather saw him through the eyes of my fourth character, Rebecca Salisbury, mm -hmm. who was completely taken with him when they first met at that opening. Right. Uh, I have a lot of time for Alfred Stieglitz, although perhaps in person I would have found him more difficult, as George O'Keefe sometimes did, because he insisted on having his way, uh, sometimes even at the expense of his nearest and dearest, particularly Georgia, once they were together. And his wife. Yes, and yes. And children. He was indeed very self-absorbed, right. but also a true visionary. So which leads one to wonder, do those two things have to go together? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look past on the ones who people who've made major changes in the world events, uh, perhaps they do. Perhaps they do. Yeah. Now, you asked me about, did I, I like my characters? I was quite fond of Rebecca mm -hmm. because she was the least well-known, the most insecure, the least likely to find her own way in the world of art, and yet she did through mm -hmm. with many changes and often uh, with the support of Stieglitz as well as her own husband, Paul Strand. So I was always interested in her. Georgia, and this is perhaps not uh, quite the right thing to say. I enjoyed her company, so to speak, much more when she was younger, when she too was still struggling and was not yet known. Um, and in the early stages of her career, which was so difficult for her to navigate, given the inf you know the kinds of um, rhetoric and interpretation that Stieglitz and the critics who followed him imposed upon her. But I've had somewhat less of a, an affectionate feeling towards her. And this is, this is curious. Once she left and settled permanently in New Mexico, I admired her choice. I understood her reasons for um, breaking with her New York life. But I felt a certain withdrawal and coldness on her part, which, again, was necessary for her to paint the way she wanted to paint and live the way she wanted to live. But my affections... Shifted. Shifted. 
Well, she's quite a different person in New Mexico. Yes, and that was for it. a variety of reasons. For, for the one thing, for the environment, because mm. of the open space and mm. the freedom that that allowed, the influence of Mabel Dodge, the yes. influence of uh, Beck, um, Rebecca, mm-hmm. and um, other liaisons that she had when she was out there. Should we can we call them that? Yes, we could. Although it's, it was said by one of the people she was closest to, the young woman who looked after her house at Ghost Ranch and built her second house at Abiquiu, that uh, everyone has thought that this young woman and O'Keefe were lovers. The young woman said, no, uh, this was not the case. Georgia was not interested in relationships by then. This is in the late 40s. Mm-hmm. Georgia was interested in the land, in the sensuality of the environment, in her vision of its meaning, those mountains, those amazing natural um, geographical forms that she painted. But she was not really into other people. (laughs) She She really wasn't. In In fact, there were two lives going back to New York when she's younger. There was the New York City life and there was the Lake George life. That's true. And they, she was quite different in both places. In Lake George, she struggled to maintain her own privacy so that she could paint because she was living with Alfred Stieglitz at the Stieglitz family's home. And it being a large, extended, noisy family, there were always too many people visiting in the summer months. And Georgia was fed up with their conversation, their demands, their self-centeredness, and would retire first to the porch to eat dinner by herself and then to what she called her shanty, which was an old shack that she redid, even re-roofed, so she could have private space to go and paint. There was always a strong need in her for that. And that I could sympathize with, very much so. I, I have something of the same need in, in, in me, but I can't imagine quite taking it to the extent that she did once she lived in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yes, I... I my mother-in-law was uh, very fond of O'Keefe and, you know, read lots about her and had prints on the wall, mm. mostly the, you know, the skull prints and the, and mm-hmm. the, the flowers. And um, she was a very – she liked her personal space. She was very you – know, That one can admire and understand. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I had different feelings to answer your question about the characters at different times in the writing even. Mm. Um, Paul Strand was the most enigmatic, the hardest to grasp. He was so reserved and so cautious, apparently. I interviewed everyone I could who who knew him and read everything about him. He was really, really hard to get close to in my imagination, but I I did what I could. Um, What was your impression of him? My impression was as a young man, he came to Stieglitz and was looking to him as a mentor. Yes, and then he realized he could never be as good mm-hmm. as Stieglitz, certainly in photography. Mm. And when you look at the, the shots, and uh, primarily of um, either Georgia or Rebecca, done by both of the men, you can see, or at least I see, maybe it's because I've been taught this way over you know, the number of years, is that Stieglitz is a far better photographer. Well, I tend to agree with you. But the next thing he does is that he goes out and finds, creates his own life. He, I mean, I knew him before I read this book as the man who did these wonderful kind of documentary films right. in South America and other places of, you know, turmoil. And um, because I'm, uh, you know, a film critic, so I would take classes in it and we'd see 
things in there. And um, he's much he's well known in the in the documentary community. Yes, and that was the real turning point for him. When he went to Mexico and made that first film, mm-hmm. Redes, or right. Nets as we call it in English, under the um, uh, guidance and sort of on commission from the head of um, cultural affairs in the Mexican government, which was in the revolutionary phase, that was a true turning point for him. When he made the decision that he wanted to put his artistic talents uh, to work in the service of the people, and particularly the downtrodden, the oppressed, you know, the the very people on whose uh, behalf the revolution was, you know, theoretically made and carried on. So he he really staked his career on a different vision, very different from that of Stieglitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we were talking earlier, you you have the static photography, the old school photography, and you've got the moving mm-hmm. movement of the you know the motion picture, which was really just, of course, a, a whole bunch of little sh- still photos put together in a long strip. And well, it's so interesting that some uh, of the people who worked with him in these rather primitive conditions of making that first film in, in Mexico included people like Fred Zinneman, who <laughs> later became very well-known in Hollywood, and right. several others yes. whose comments I've read to have a good uh, you know, a sense of, of Strand at that time. Well, um, and the other thought that I had was, is that as the director-photographer, he was in charge. There was nobody else. Everybody had to, to come to him right. for how to do it. Sort of like everybody had to go to Stieglitz for how to do it, and that was his vision. Now Strand's vision. That was a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it quite like that. Yes, so he became his own, his own man, his own man at that point. Right. However, that was also the time at which he and and Beck decided that their lives would not be able to continue together because she did not wish to go along with him on this new path. Well, that's right. And that's exactly how I read, at least in the pages of your work, that she was the decider. She's the one who said, okay, this is enough. But she had someone else already. She did. Yes. And that is something that I discovered. That's 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 the, new. Bill up there in Colorado, was it? Uh, yes, yes. yes. And that it's, <laughs> it's so funny because these people were very unconventional, you know, very, very... Um, what should we bohemian. say? Free, yeah, sort of aristocratic bohemian, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> or bourgeois bohemian. The French have this term bobo, which means bourgeois oh. bohemian. Well, okay. However, when it came to things like um, extramarital affairs and their consequences, they weren't always so forthcoming. You know, there's a difference with people today. Today we have rather more relaxed standards. Well, Beck, in spite of being or um, you know, living in this kind of world, kept the whole affair with Bill James a secret. When she she met Bill James in Taos a, a couple of years after she and Georgia went west and and uh, first explored the possibilities of a um, new American vernacular sources for their painting. Well, she met Bill James a couple of years later. They fell madly in love. But she kept the whole thing fairly secret. Right. And it's only by carefully reading the letters and <laughs> with the help of her family, I had the great good fortune to make contact with uh, the remaining members of Beck's family. She never had children, but there are a great, two great nephews and a great niece, the Salisburys, 
who kindly gave me all sorts of documents and photographs, mm. I was able to reconstruct that love affair before it went public. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're the investigative journalist here. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, let's go talk about the letters because they were a, a, a treasure trove to you. And what I find consistently, no matter who was writing, and, and all four people's letters and several other people's letters are mentioned as well, or articles that they put in journals and magazines, people wrote really, really elegantly. It's impressive in our day, isn't it, of text messages and emails. <laughs> uh, they wrote numbers of letters every day, some of them, particularly mm -hmm. Stieglitz. But the correspondence between Stieglitz and O'Keefe is just gorgeous. It is very literary, very passionate, particularly in the early years when they're so much in love but separated geographically. The time and attention that people put into their letters then is just something that we find most of us hard to imagine now, and we will miss in the future. Biographers well, won't have those letters. No, you're going to go and look up something and say, I heart your whatever, you know, <laughs> know emoticon, know. right? Yes, Smiley emoticons, face. emoticons don't really do no, the job. They don't. I wonder what future biographers will do about this. Uh, I think they're going to have a hard time, although they'll probably look to the emails, you know, the, the yes. text, things like there, yes. and say, oh, look, this is what they really meant. The emails will seem far more um, revealing by comparison with the texts. Exactly. Well, one of the things that happens consistently with Stieglitz, and this is the question why I asked if you liked him, especially in this era of the Me Too movement, is how he would uh, groom his nude models. Yes. You're smiling. And it's not just Georgia. In fact, there's a, there's a part uh, in 83, 84. Let's read that section uh, about where he's convincing her to pose. And I just find it's fascinating because it's perfect tie-in to, to what he does, how he writes. At this point, he's in New York and she's in Canyon, Texas, where she was an art teacher. Right. And she has not posed for him in the nude yet. No. Writing to Georgia late one night, Alfred touched on his wish to photograph her in the nude. The subject had come up in conversation with Paul Strand, he right. explained, when the young man mentioned that she had declined to do so for him. He said, I think she'd pose nude for you. And I said, perhaps she would. He was gleeful on learning that, quote, no man on earth has ever been given such gifts so consciously, so willingly, naturally. Portrait sessions continued until the end of June. Oh, no, I was wrong about this. She was already in New York. I, I oh, she's place. in New York. Okay. Yes, this was after she left Texas and okay. came to live in New York where um, Stieglitz gave her a studio and said she could have a year to paint. And they had not yet become lovers. There right. was a long period of you know, great growing intimacy and affection, but they were not yet um as I said, okay. lovers. Poor, so this is going on in New York. He lives in his apartment with his wife, from whom he's estranged, and their daughter. Georgia O'Keefe lives in the um, studio some blocks away at this point. Portrait sessions continued until the end of June. In a series of poses that illustrate Alfred's wish for Georgia to see herself as he did, she let down her hair and loosened her kimono to reveal her breasts. 
standing before her drawing number 15 special. She gazes at the camera unabashedly or takes her breasts in her hands as if weighing their contours, perhaps a gesture derived from Rodin's drawings. I'll make you fall in love with yourself, Alfred wrote, then added that he could hear her, quote, telling me what I must not do until she was ready. Their impassioned discovery of each other was interrupted in July when Alfred took Kitty to summer camp in New Hampshire. After his return, he brought Georgia to his apartment to continue portrait sessions in his dressing room. Emmy, his wife, walked in on them unexpectedly and ordered him to stop seeing the self-possessed young woman. He refused, packed his bags, and joined her at the studio. While it was the opportunity he had been waiting for, it was painful to admit that after 25 years of marriage, he and Emmy shared little except their love of their daughter. For a time, Alfred and Georgia slept side by side with a blanket over a clothesline between them, an arrangement that intensified the charged atmosphere. He kept his camera on a rickety tripod with the black cloth under which he disappeared when the time was right. It was understood that they would be in the studio whenever the light was best for picture-taking. Much has been written about these sessions over the next two years, when most of the extended portrait was taken. Was Stieglitz in control, or was O'Keefe an equal partner in the portrayal of, quote, the woman he was making? Do these deeply felt images belong among O'Keefe's work as well as Stieglitz's? Should we see in them, quote, an ongoing exchange of observation and solicitation, hers as well as his, provocation and response, his as well as hers? Or as a biographer puts it, as the evidence of a subtle collaboration, an intricate psychological pas de deux. Okay, and how do you see it? Because uh, you've given, you've carefully given both points of view. Yes, I wanted to do that because this the subject has been debated and discussed for quite some time, as as you know. I think that it probably became more of a collaboration after beginning as um, something more traditional. She was, after all, an art student and an art teacher who was quite accustomed to uh, not only drawing from the nude figure in drawing. her art right. classes, right. figure drawing, which was you know a part of the art training, but she had posed for others uh, when she was a, a young student. She was, was very attractive. So this would not have seemed really peculiar to her, except the fact that there was already quite a an attraction between them. And it does take considerable um, confidence and trust to disrobe in that fashion. I think she was probably in the early stages looking to him as the impresario, gallery owner, influential older man in the art world that that he was, Mm -hmm. and probably gradually became aware of her own powers of attraction and his his, abiding interest and and, uh, concern for her. So perhaps things shifted over time as they got used to each other, uh, as trust developed and as it became clear that, yes, indeed, this was going to be a very, very important relationship, even though it was not yet, as we would call it, consummated. 
We trust you can hear how paintings, drawings, photographs, moving pictures, poetry, and letters infuse this month's episode of Word-by-Word Conversations with writers from Northern California Public Media, KRC-BFM. This is because Gil Manser's guest is the respected biographer Carolyn Burke with her latest book, Foursome, where the four people who burst forth in the volume are photographer Alfred Stieglitz, painter Georgia O'Keeffe, movie maker Paul Strand, and writer-painter Rebecca Salisbury. Stay tuned for another half hour of Goings On amid the free-living artists who created American modernism. If I can go back you, you, earlier, it's on page 67 for anybody who wants to look it up, but uh, where Georgia is writing to Alfred, and she's talking about the men who she's hanging around with. Mm-hmm. And then after you introduce all those men, what, do you want to read that to us? Oh, I'm just checking on okay. what was I saying. You were basically, um, it's the final line in that, that Georgia was familiar with the arguments for free love, even though she did not wish to act on them. All available evidence, in parentheses, makes it likely that she remained a virgin. And she's going on flirting with men, Rector Lester, William Austin, Kindred Watkins, etc., etc. She was a big flirt. Yes. However, there are many reasons to conclude, as I do in the book, that she did not go further with these relationships. She was testing her power, among other things. But it was would have been extremely risky to go any further, particularly with the married men who were among Many her admirers. Many of them were married, yes. yes. And uh, she was not too inclined, or not inclined at all, really, to give up her independence. She often saw the situation of a woman, a talented woman, an artist like herself, as one of a choice. Either you acted as a traditional woman and entered into the usual kinds of relationships that um, men would expect, or you maintained yourself for yourself so that you could live the way you needed to in order to paint. You maintained yourself for yourself. She found it a very difficult choice. You may remember in the book, when she was first in love with the handsome young instructor from Columbia, she experienced tremendous difficulty about the idea of falling deeply in love because it seemed to her that that meant giving up her autonomy, not maintaining herself for herself. That's in some of her letters to her good friend Anita. And I think that was very strong in her. One well, other... it was strong in society that she was in at the time, too. Oh, yes. But the point was is that this later time, she's living with artists who have and, – and reading about, you know, tracks on free love mm-hmm. and, and the, in the magazines and the, you know, the exponents of we're creating a whole new, you know, or world order and et cetera, et cetera. However, you have to remember that she was brought up in a much more conventional way. Right. She grew up on a farm in the, you know um, – in the middle of the country and had very uh, strong down-to-earth roots. Which she, she was not inclined to um, run off and, and, and do uh, things in the ways that the people who lived in Greenwich Village might do. She, frivolously. Frivolously or just for the sake of the new. There's one more. <laughs> <laughs> well, this will be different, yes. There's one more reason why I conclude uh, that she was a virgin at this time, even when she was flirting tremendously with all the men around her. And that is found in a letter from Alfred to Georgia 
1929. Mm -hmm. I was not the one to discover it. The um, editor of her letters, who is also an eminent art critic and historian of photography, Sarah Greenow, found this letter to wit. Stieglitz is remembering the very day in July, um, what, nine or ten years earlier, when finally, after he came back to Lake George after he had taken his daughter Kitty to camp. He and O'Keefe really did consummate the relationship. And he's remembering this day all these years later with with a sense of delight and wonder that at last they became um, each other's intimates. He calls this day in his letter Virginity Day. He also says that she gives him that gift. yes. Yes. Which is a, certainly uh, not the impression you have that Stieglitz would wait, I guess. You know, he seems a kind of a pushy kind of a guy, shall we say. Actually, he honored and respected her wishes. Her wishes, but not necessarily other women's. No, he, he had a, a, a very different attitude towards her and, and knew somehow that she was his equal and that he would never win her if he... Uh, you know, pushed her around against her wishes. Right, right. Which, of course, becomes some of the uh, give and take over the you know the next ten years. And so that's right. Yes, but it was fortunate to have discovered that letter because you know this was always in doubt. With the publication of the first volume of their amazing correspondence a few years ago, we learned a lot of things that contradicted previous assumptions for lack of knowledge. So that that's important. Well, let me ask about that because later on in the book you talk about him sitting, I think in Lake George, if I remember correctly, burning letters and manuscripts and writings. So how did you – how was this cache of letters preserved? Fortunately uh, – Nearly everything was preserved, even though he did burn some um, documents. He didn't burn so many letters, I think. I think he burned issues of camera work, which was a terrible mistake. (laughs) The magazine. (laughs) Yes, Yes, his magazine. And uh, he tore up lots of negatives. He went through a very depressed, destructive phase. But somehow this massive correspondence was saved, and O'Keefe, to her credit, after his death, spent the next couple of years sorting through this voluminous archive, separating things into different categories, and then getting them all to the Beinecke, the um, rare book archive at Yale, where she had decided they would go. So it's thanks to her that we have this remarkable archive of both his and her uh, correspondence and other materials. They knew they were important <laughs> to the co- history of, of, of the, the nation somehow. I think they were aware of their significance. It's interesting that the galleries, uh, Stieglitz's galleries, is what's how everybody in this book first meets um, individually and then together. Because Georgia went to see Stieglitz's gallery when she was an art student. First. Yes. Yes, when she was, what, 20 or something. And um, then later on, Beck comes – I mean, sorry, let me start before Beck. Paul Strand comes yes. to the gallery, you know, as, as to, to meet Stieglitz as much as to see what's on the walls. Yes. And then uh, Beck comes at, at that, you know, very famous uh, opening with the, with the nudes. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about why you called the book – why did you use the title you did, which has a kind of a 
frisson to I it. know. You know, is that know. why? Well, it just came to me. Sometimes that happens, you know, it, um, like lines that might turn into poems or not. Um, titles just come to me. For instance, um, when I was writing The Life of Edith Piaf, I just knew that it had to be no regrets, because uh, not only because of the famous song, but because... In a way, even with all the tragedies in her life, she had no regrets. It seemed to me to say a great deal about her that, in fact, uh, once again, uh, contradicted commonly received opinions. Well, with my group, I wanted to give some sense of the complex entanglements in their relationships. So first I tried out a word like quartet, and that didn't quite do it. I tried out, yes, quartet was not, uh, there were some other ways I was thinking about it, uh, but foursome stuck. And then, of course, I had to have their names following it. And I wondered, is this a little too risque or something? But I tried it out on my editor, whose taste is impeccable and whom I trust absolutely. And he said, yes, that's it. It's got to be foursome. And then we have the long string of names, Alfred Stieglitz, George O'Keefe, Paul Strand, Rebecca Salisbury. But um, I hope it's not too – I hope it doesn't make people think of golf or something like that. Or tennis. Yes. Right. But it, well, interesting enough, I, I, I went and looked it up in several different dictionaries because I, I went immediately to the sexual description mm-hmm. of what it meant. And none of those are listed in the dictionary. No, it's only games – well, that's probably better. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's much better. Yes, because probably better. Yeah, yeah. I I realize that it's I'm risking a bit with that title, but when you see the cover and when you hear the names, I think you understand. Well, I will tell you that um, some of the reviews have used the word for Georgia, for instance, called her promiscuous. Maybe you've seen that as well. No, I haven't seen that. And um, I think they've misread your book completely. Yes. Who said she was promiscuous? I would have to. I've got well, to, yes, to they've misread. Yes. There has been some misreading so far. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. Um, how would I say this? It is meticulous. It does. You have to read it. I mean, do you know what the sense? You know, there's there's reading and then there's reading. Yes. And this, I mean, this has. I didn't look at all of them and check them all out, but this has a third of the last part of the book is is just uh, footnotes. Well, I documentation. Was, I was very careful. I am very, what shall I say, well-trained as a scholar. Not that I wish to parade that. I want to tell a good story. I hope <laughs> I tell a good story. You do. But I back it up for anybody who wants to check things out. One I back it up. One of the things I ended up doing, and I don't know if you intended this, but you would say, and so they went to a party, and along with so-and-so was so-and-so, 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 all names. You, know, I'd recognize half of the names, mm-hmm. but other people I didn't know at all. So I'd be you know, actually computer checking to see who these people were. Yeah. And they were the movers and shakers. They were. That's yes. why they're it in was, there. It was the the A-list. Absolutely. I wanted to give a sense of that time of those people, of their relationships and how they affected each other. So that's why it's it's kind of, it's thick, it's dense. It's got a lot of players in it addition to the dense, four. It is but it's rich. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I, that's what I wanted to accomplish. <laughs> Uh, I never got bored with them because they're such a, a 
a stimulating cast of characters. You don't expect to have Diego Rivera turn up in the midst of, right. you know, and you find out more about uh, art in the Mexican Revolution. These people's lives touched on so much. I didn't know, for instance, instead of Rivera, that O'Keefe was tacked to paint the murals in some restroom in a... That's right. Yes. Radio City Radio Music City Hall. Radio City Music Hall. Yes. So, yes. I mean... And she took the job even though it didn't pay as much as her paintings did. She wanted to paint big and she wanted to paint murals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's just astounding how the cast of characters in this is so immense. I mean, and worldly. You know, they're from everywhere coming in. And some of it's in New York, but others are coming to Lake George. Others are, you know, coming out to Taos. Others are – it just depends on where the people were. But they were in – that's what you did. You'd go and you met and you mingled. And you, and at that time, you had to travel a long distance. So people would spend the night and you'd have breakfast together, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. It, I suppose that those kinds of worlds are the, uh, appeal to some of us. We would like to have lived that way, too. We would like to have been part of these groups, you know, even though we know that there were quarrels and um, it wasn't always uh, – completely peaceful or harmonious. But even right. so, it was pretty exciting and stimulating. And out of these social relations uh, came, indeed, a, a strong current of, of American modern art and thinking as well, because these were somewhat visionary thinkers. Another character in the book who's not on the, the cover, but in a way could be, there's Mabel Dodge. Yes. Now, she is a character who I have a hard time pinning down. Maybe it's because she was different in different times. I had always envisioned her, and again, this is through my mother-in-law because she would talk about her often, as a kind of a salon person, the person who, you know, like the Parisian salon, people would come to her as a retreat place That's right. and, and create while they were there. She had space for them to yes, do that. Yes, she could afford to do that, and she liked to lure um, interesting people like D.H. Lawrence and then later Georgia O'Keeffe to her um, spread. Spread. Yes. <laughs> I was searching for the word. She well, had, it's down in the southwest. You can call it a, a spread. spread. Good. Because she had different spreads in different locations. First, she had a spread, which was an elegant villa outside of Florence mm -hmm. in the earlier days where she did the same thing. She attracted artists and often impecunious intellectuals because she had the resources <laughs> and she could kind of sponsor them and make them her protégés. But she was also very controlling and so she would interfere in their lives, break up their marriages, cause people no end of grief, which is why D.H. Lawrence left her spread in, in New Mexico. He'd had enough with Mabel's interference. Yeah, but she doesn't. It's funny. She's willing to do that to others. But when Georgia starts hanging out with her husband, she becomes incensed. That's right. She was furious. She she was not on the spot, and she misinterpreted their friendship. Uh, she was quite sure that they must have been sleeping together, which it seems was not the case. They just truly enjoyed each other's well, they company. they like to take car rides together. Yeah, her husband was a, a Pueblo Indian at yes. that point. She was her fourth husband, and very attractive man, but a very honorable man, too. They'd go camping along with Rebecca, too, and they'd... Um, you know, go up in the mountains to places that her husband, Tony Lujan, knew. It was probably all good fun and a good friendship. There's no reason to conclude, as Mabel did, that there was hanky-panky. 
But Mabel was also kind of a spiritual searcher. She's a very odd character. What was it that interested you about her? You were going to say Well, more. because it's the odd character part about it. So there's kind of like, I would say, five different people mm. involved. In, in And Mabeltown, is, I think, is the sub, you know, part of Taos, yes. uh, the, the subgroup of that area and her spread again. And, you know, I think I knew what she was getting out of, but the parallels between her and Stieglitz are quite strong. And he met her originally. I think that's how yes. it, you know, she in, got you know, in Georgia. In New York. It. Yes. And um, it's just, a, it's, I guess it's part of the art scene. It's not the artists themselves, but, you know, it's the, it's the people who gather them together and then they become famous for knowing the famous. That's and right. And saying, oh, yes, well, I knew him when, you know, I was poor and penniless. Et yes, it's a role that we know about. And Mabel certainly did... Um, a lot for many people, but she also messed up their lives when, uh, whenever she got jealous or you know interfering. She just couldn't help herself. She's not the most attractive character. No, well, that's why one of the reasons why she's so fascinating, and because I had only been introduced to her again by my mother-in-law as a, the attractive parts of her. That's uh, all I'd heard of. Uh-huh. So when I, <laughs> I oh, huh, interesting. Well, yes. she was a meddler. That's a very good word. <laughs> yes. And I think she enjoyed the uh, Sturm und Drang of it all. Oh, I think she did. And she also liked being the queen, you know, the queen bee with all of these fascinating characters, um, you know, evolving around her and uh, because of her. But very quickly, O'Keefe, who didn't suffer fools gladly or like being um, taken charge of, decided that, no, she was not going to stay at Mabel's spread and mm-hmm. made her own arrangements because mm-hmm. she saw that Mabel was too interfering. Yet she retained a certain affection for her. So Mabel must have had some some charms you know, that aren't always yes. apparent to us. Yes. Well, that's why she's an interesting character. Yes. Now let's go back a little bit because we, we kind of skipped over parts. But there are two, thing, two major things that happen in the book that I learned about Georgia. First is... Um, Alfred wanted her to get married because he got a divorce. Yes. And then he's putting pressure on her to get married. And she resists, I guess is a good word. Yes. For quite a long time, mm-hmm. giving him reasons, often in, in letter correspondence, etc. And then at the same time, Alfred starts a risque correspondence with Beck. Yes. Now, do you think that was his ace in the hole, Is in, if George had never said yes? Because she was married to Paul, Paul Strand. Strand. Yes, I don't think so. I think that it was one of those again very flirtatious relationships, of which um, there are many sorts. <laughs> he enjoyed Beck's company. She was very lively. She was a bit of a scamp. She loved to, um, you know, act up and defy her mother's very conventional um, upbringing. So they had a good time together. Mm-hmm. Beck was. Uh, Quite keen to be a bad girl, <laughs> right? In many respects, there's several Didn't, instances where he's he first initially has to convince her to go skinny dipping, but yeah. then she's readily able. Mm-hmm. Writes about you know how much fun it is, et mm-hmm. cetera, et cetera. Even when they get uh, the policeman appears. Yes, that's a very funny story. But as you recall, uh, 
that was when Beck went skinny dipping with her husband, That's Paul. Right. And reports went around Lake George that there was this scandalous uh, activity going on with this couple. Who married couple? But anyway, uh, the policeman was sent down to investigate. By a neighbor's complaint. Yes. And the whole thing was settled uh, by Stieglitz. But Beck, who is on the one hand trying to you know, be the bohemian, be the bad girl, and enjoy herself, wrote to Paul, who had to go back to New York soon thereafter, don't say anything about this incident. It's much better if I handle it. it you know, I don't want it to get back to my mother. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, like many of us, they were full of contradictions, wanting to be very free and unconventional, but on the other hand, having certain, um, you know, their own upbringing. And, no, to come back to your question, I don't think that Alfred considered back his alternative to Georgia in that way. And on the other hand, let's mention Dorothy Norman. There was his alternative who yes. came along later, yes. There's an interesting scene. Essentially, um, she is in the studio and she has had a baby and her breasts are quite pronounced. Mm. And um, he leans over I see we have a kind of running theme in yeah, this discussion, which is about well, breasts, it's, isn't it? I don't know. It is, isn't it? But anyway, what he does is that he undoes her blouse and fondles her breast. He didn't undo her blouse. He okay, touched he her. He touched her. He touched okay. her, but which is already very daring. But in the same week, Georgia is going to have a lump removed from her breast, which it, it didn't have to happen because it was it was benign, but... It's 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 very close in time, perhaps not the same week, okay. but very close in time. And so very disturbing mm -hmm. to me as writer to you know thinking of the women. Uh, it's kind of I would say the most distressing time uh, in Alfred's um, long life for me is his affair with Dorothy Norman and his way of letting that interfere with his marriage to Georgia O'Keeffe. And his life. His, and completely. And Norman is, of course, uh, in my view, very questionable in her motives at this point, too. But somehow the two of them felt that they were above and beyond the standards for any kind of normal behavior because their love was so pure. This is Alfred and Dorothy Norman. Right. That this allowed them to uh, be beyond criticism I suppose we can sympathize with that. Sometimes when you fall in love, you know, you really become oblivious to other people's opinions and standards. But it doesn't put Alfred in a good light. And it did indeed precipitate George's nervous breakdown a couple of years later. Right. Well, this is an interesting thing that just happened. I'm not sure you're even aware of it. And when I read this in your book, you are, the word I would think of is judgmental about this relationship. And it comes across, you write it in a different manner, just as you talked about it in a different manner. There's kind of a stilted, I'm going to step back from this, but I don't quite approve. Oh, it's interesting that came through to you. Yes, which is why I brought her up, as, you know, because there's several other women along the way. But, um, and the other thing that goes on is she has children. Yes, she'd and, already had one yeah, and had yes, another. and had another. And Georgia hates children. Yes. Yeah. And she she writes about that several yes, times. Yes. And that's basically, she calls them little snot-nosed brats and things like that. Yes. Yes, quite vociferous about it. And I think we're back to the, 
giving up of herself again. If I become a mother, that's my label. Right, right. Because if I become a wife, that's my label. Mm-hmm. If I become a lover, that's my label. That's how the world sees me. I would agree with you. Yes, it seemed uh, these were oppositional. These were choices. You couldn't do both or all. In right. fact, it's very difficult to do both or all still. now, still, still today. Yes, uh, that's why their story is so interesting. Absolutely. And it is. It's a fascinating story. Um, and, the, and to go on with Dorothy, for instance, there is a hateful book of poetry that she does. Oh, it's just where, awful. Where she writes about her <laughs> her pure love, you know, destined from the stars with Alfred. And then she writes about Georgia as this poor, untalented female. Well, if you wonder where my own feelings, which you detected <laughs> so well, came from, it's from reading that book of poems, among other things. It's really just blatantly um, anti-Georgia. And it's pure gush, self-justifying gush. Yeah. <laughs> and the, it, It's unfortunate. The biographer is supposed to be objective, but sometimes she can't help it. <laughs> no, I'm not criticizing you for it. I think that's fascinating, you know, because you get to know these people you better do. than— than their families do, certainly. Ah, well. Yes, well, that's what happens when you go to the sources. You go back you know, to the very book of poems and you read them and you think, oh, my God, you described it very well. And yet Dorothy Norman became a very respected kind of cultural eminence magazine publisher. She had a column in a New York paper in the 40s. She knew all sorts of famous people, but she really she was that same young woman <laughs> Who did what she did mm-hmm. and wrote what she wrote. Mm-hmm. And tarnished the person you like. Well, and, and really helped cause her nervous breakdown. That's yes. pretty yes. severe. Tarnishes to life. Damaged. Yes. yes. Because in a certain way, with all of their differences, all of their quarrels, all of their conflicts, uh, Stieglitz and O'Keefe were each other's greatest loves, I, I truly believe. So I guess I felt distressed that that should be interfered with. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we need to uh, come to a close. And as promised, paintings, drawings, photographs, moving pictures, poetry, and letters have infused this month's episode of Word by Word Conversations with Writers from Northern California Public Media, KRCB-FM. Gil's guest has been the respected biographer Carolyn Burke with her latest book, Foursome, focusing on the interwoven lives of the four talented people who burst forth in the volume, photographer Albert Stieglitz, painter George O'Keefe, movie maker Paul Strand, and writer-painter Rebecca Salisbury. This program is produced at Northern California Public Media's KRCB-FM studio in Roanoke Park, California, and made available as an NPR podcast with the generous support from listeners like you. Our studio engineer for today's show has been Anthony Garcia, our station manager, Sean Knight, radio coordinator, Wendy Nicholson, podcast archivist, Mark Prell. The theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for our next Word by Word show from 4 to 5 on the afternoon of April 14th when our guest will be the best-selling novelist, Lisa C., with her newest book, The Island of Sea Women. Even if your body clock is feeling the spring-forward impact of beginning daylight savings times, we wish you a peaceful afternoon and evening.